Hi, everyone. Welcome to Oscar Wild, a podcast about film, always counting down to next year's Oscars. I'm Nick Rorkraut. And I'm Sophia Simonello. And we are back in theaters this week. We'll be talking about two new releases, A Quiet Place Part 2 and Cruella. It was great to be back in theaters for both of these. We got to see Cruella together, and I know that we joke often about how we always end up seeing bad movies together, (laughs) so just stay tuned for how we felt about that one. And A Quiet Place Part 2, very fun to see in a theater. So we'll definitely, Mm -hmm. I think, talk about our reactions to not just seeing them, but what it was like to see them in a theater again. And for both of these movies, we will be going into spoilers, so if you haven't seen these and you don't want them spoiled, come back to this episode after you've seen the movies. Before we get into the films themselves, though, we did have a couple of updates in the movie world this week. The first big one was that Amazon bought the MGM for $8.45 billion, which is nuts. That's a huge price tag, and it doesn't affect their bottom line at all, which is kind of crazy. Yeah, we're seeing this consolidation into fewer and fewer studios, which is how it was almost 100 years ago. So Mm -hmm. I don't know if we're getting back to that again. But it is sad to see a big studio, one of the big five that we've talked about before, kind of go away. Yeah. I mean, I think like when we're thinking about the valuation of MGM, like we definitely find value in that library because there are so many Mm -hmm. iconic titles in that library. It has you know, such a storied past. I was looking at like the photos of all of the MGM players like from the 40s and just getting really sad about that becoming Jeff's property, basically. <laughs> and what I think about the number, though, is like, is this the right price? Because Disney bought Lucasfilm for $4 billion. I don't know. That seems like a pretty valuable property to me. And same with Pixar. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. like those prices being lower than MGM are interesting especially because a lot of the MGM titles that we think of, like The Wizard of Oz, those titles that are like classic MGM titles won't be Amazons. Okay. So what ended up happening in the 80s, Ted Turner bought MGM. So that's why we have like Turner classic movies. Mm -hmm. So Amazon won't have control of those films. Those are still owned by Warner. But they will have all of... The MGM titles, I believe, after 1986. So anything after that date, like they have, including the United Artists films, which include like Rocky and the James Bond franchise. But what I thought was really interesting and so annoying, and we will definitely talk about this more as we talk about Cruella, is that Mike Hopkins, the senior vice president of Prime Video and Amazon Studios, said the real financial value behind this deal is the treasure trove of IP. They've talked about like expanding the Legally Blonde universe, like all of these things, like they just want IP. And uh, that to me is what's a little scary about it. That's the worst part. Oh my yeah. gosh. If all they want to do is build universes like Marvel, right? there's no original content. Like that's what we want. Right. And so now also like the new movies for this year, if you're wondering like what goes into this deal, right? We have the new James Bond movie, No Time to Die, which we've been talking about basically for months. The untitled Paul Thomas Anderson project slash Soggy Bottom, House of Gucci, Respect, the Aretha Franklin biopic. Those are all now Amazon with this deal because they're part of the new rebranding of MGM. And then I wonder with those and their releases, are they going to release them on Prime? Kind of like a Disney Plus premiere access kind of thing? Or are they going to go in theaters? There was news recently of Netflix getting a deal with theaters and Mm -hmm. having their releases go, which was big. So I I wonder how they're going to play that out as well. Right. And like how Netflix owns the Paris Theater in New York. I'm wondering if like Amazon all of a sudden is going to announce that they're buying the Arclight and that's going to be an Amazon thing. It's dark. Oh my gosh. (laughs) But yeah, this is a huge sale for Amazon. It's their second biggest deal since they bought Whole Foods. So they just have money to burn. And this, I think they're burning money, but we will see what happens with it. (laughs) And then the other set of news is that we had an announcement of 2022 Oscar dates 
So the 94th Oscars will be on Sunday, March 27th, 2022. And then going back from there, the nominations will be announced on February 8th. So that gives us like a month and a half. And then the shortlists are released on December 21st. So there's going to be a lot of messy predicting Mm -hmm. for those nine categories. We're going to have, again, almost a month and a half until nominations to now maybe watch all of these shortlisted films and shorts Mm -hmm. and then to figure out what might get in. And if you followed along with us this year, some of those didn't turn out so well (laughs) for us predicting. (laughs) So (laughs) this could also be very difficult. Yeah. I personally like don't mind having a late March Oscars. They've done that in mm-hmm. the past. We'll be fine, everybody. It'll be okay. I think the good thing is that the eligibility window is from March 1st to December 31st, 2021. I was a little worried it would be extended again. I just, I kind of like having the calendar be very clear. So mm-hmm. these will be the 2021 Oscars. I think, yes, it does shorten our window, but I think that's just going to force studios to make late December dates happen. So I think we're going to have a high concentration of movies released. I mean, we knew that going into this year. So I think that's exciting for us watching, for people wanting those movies finally. But yeah, I guess I'm happy with not having that like mid-March, the father release. Yeah, I think this will be good. And I'm just really excited to get all of these movies Seeing some of the trailers that have come out recently, we're going to get Mm -hmm. tons of great movies in October. And we got two films that we'll talk about today that I think have Oscar potential, at least in certain categories. First, we're going to be talking about Cruella. The description here, long story short, it's a prequel to 101 Dalmatians. The longer description from Letterboxd. In 1970s London, amidst the punk rock revolution... A young grifter named Estella is determined to make a name for herself and her designs. She befriends a pair of young thieves who appreciate her appetite for mischief, and together they are able to build a life for themselves on the London streets. One day, Estella's flair for fashion catches the eye of the Baroness von Helmen, a fashion legend. <laughs> I'm reading this description, and this <laughs> this is how I felt during the movie, watching it. Like, oh my god, we have an hour left. <laughs> But their relationship sets in motion a course of events and revelations that will cause Estella to embrace her wicked side and become the raucous, fashionable, and revenge-bent Cruella. It's directed by Craig Gillespie and stars Emma Stone, Emma Thompson, Paul Walter Hauser, and Joel Fry. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) You made it. We made it (laughs) again. (laughs) So first thoughts on the movie. What did you think? So I think with these movies... I go in with really low expectations. I'm just going to start there. You know, Mm -hmm. these Disney live action remakes or prequels or origin stories. I set my expectations pretty low. For this one, I will say it did keep my attention and I found it pretty enjoyable for the most part, especially just because of the look of the film and the subject matter of the film. I mean, it's pretty easy to convince me to watch something about fashion in 70s London like that's just more in line with my sensibilities and interests Mm -hmm. as opposed to maybe some of the other Disney prequels and you know comic book movies anything that's just a mining of IP that being said this is a mining of IP and it's just something that I don't need I, I don't really care about origin stories of villains or characters like I'm fine with them just existing in their worlds, but I did think it was successful for the most part in comparison to other Disney live action films. I found a lot of the performances to be really fun, the costumes I really enjoyed. We can talk about other elements like the music and things like that too, Mm -hmm. but I do have problems with it just because of the type of film that it is. And I totally expected that going into it. What about you? Yeah, I think in terms of Disney's live action films, it's one of its better ones if not maybe the best especially ones that are connected to other universes Mm -hmm. that they've already established that being said it felt so long so much longer than it needed to be they could have tightened the story i get that they want to develop you know who cruella becomes but yeah we had like multiple fashion shows multiple galas multiple car chase sequences i was like why are we doing so much But I also did like the costumes a lot. I think it's 
cinematography wise on the smarter side and I did enjoy watching or looking at it. So I think let's start with the first section of the film with a young Cruella. We get an Emma Stone voiceover. So Craig Gillespie directed I, Tanya also. And this reminded me of I, Tanya a little bit, like that style. But mm-hmm. we get a very like Dickensian Britain with this really rebellious young Estella. And we're getting a lot of backstory. And then... I don't think this is a spoiler because it's been going around on Twitter and it's what happens in legitimately every Disney movie, but Estella is orphaned. Her mom dies in like the first, what, 20 minutes of the movie? Maybe, yeah. And it is wild. It's horrifying to think that Disney omitted smoking and cigarettes from all their movies since I think 2015. And Emma Stone found that really hard to connect with Cruella or, you know, not having that on screen as part of her character. The fact that they have these Dalmatians pushing a mother off of a cliff murdering her is okay. Like, those don't connect to me. But it's also hilarious. These CG dogs, which we can also get into, Mm -hmm. they use like a mix of CG and real dogs. And there was an article that said Craig couldn't even notice when. But I feel like I knew when they were and weren't. It was very noticeable. (laughs) But yeah, we start off with Estella hiding, seeing this happen. And we kind of go the first half of the movie as if we didn't know that was the Baroness who was there doing it. And then there was this big revelation of, oh my God, it was her. It was like, yeah, we knew that all along. (laughs) It was like, okay, come on, let's pick it up. Yeah, well, I think the hard part is like that we knew that that she kind of like six the dogs on her but Estella doesn't they had trouble showing that dramatic irony there it isn't a twist like we definitely knew it all along so then like moving forward I think what was hard for me is that Disney always works really hard to humanize these villains now and I don't really like if we're thinking about Maleficent and now Cruella that's not something that I need And it's not something that I understand, like, why they need to do that. How do you think Emma Stone's Cruella compared to, like, Glenn Close's Cruella? So I think part of the disconnect for me also was in connecting these two people Mm -hmm. as the same Cruella. Because you have the Emma Stone Cruella, who at first I couldn't tell if she was Estella or Stella. Like, I felt like throughout the movie they say her name so often I was like, wait, which is it? But there's a part in the movie where they think she's skinning the Baroness's Dalmatians to make this gown or dress. And obviously that's what the Glenn Close character was trying to do. So the fact that the Emma Stone Cruella is now like, oh, I would never do that. Why is Glenn's character 15, 20 years later trying to do that again? I think in the story and the development of young Cruella... They didn't do a good enough job in convincing me that she now becomes more and more evil Mm -hmm. because they're trying to humanize her and they want the audience to connect with this villain. Right. And I think it works to some extent, but I think they do that at the disposal of the character that was already there. Yeah. What's hard is that like, I like Estella slash Cruella, Emma Stone's version. Fine. But Only if you don't consider her to be the Cruella that we get in 101 Dalmatians or in the live action 101 Dalmatians with Glenn Close. And Mm -hmm. part of what I loved about Cruella as a kid and recently rewatching the animated version was that we didn't really know anything about her. She kind of reminds me of this like older, like Bethany Frankel type of character who like is just, <laughs> just like storming into rooms, like talking really quickly, really loudly at people. She just blows smoke in people's faces. She has this really cool bedroom in this like decrepit castle, like crazy road rage with this amazing car. Like, that's just fun. And not Mm. knowing anything about her is fine. Like, we can use our imaginations and figure out maybe what happened to this woman. And, like, part of her character is that she wants to skin these dogs to make a coat. Why are Mm. you trying to humanize a person like that? Just let them be evil in a fictional story. Picking up on Betty Lou Gerson's performance in the 61 version, 
we have Glenn Close bringing that same type of energy, that camp, the way that she does her line readings, the way that she laughs, that really fits, I think, if you're connecting these two characters. They feel like the same character, just in different settings and time periods. And that's what I think really works. And when you have an origin story and you're trying to humanize this person, like, I liked this character, but I had no idea, no idea how this connected with the 101 Dalmatians that's Disney canon. And so the day that her mother dies, she tells her mother once they're going to London that she's not going to be trouble anymore. And she becomes this nicer person. But then she becomes Cruella, I think, once she realizes the Baroness was behind her mother's murder. And then she turns evil again. And then later on, once we figure out the connection there, kind of just blaming it on the Baroness. And that, to me, was also hard to humanize Cruella because she's she could have been a good person. And she kind of just decided not to be and to blame somebody else for the evil that took over her. Yeah, let's talk about Emma Thompson as the Baroness, because I really loved her in this character. I thought it was just, like, fun to watch because it's Emma Thompson. Mm -hmm. And I did, I will admit, like, I kept envisioning, like, where does this take place in the Phantom Thread universe? When Alma takes over House of Woodcock, is she competing with House of Baroness? Like, I just wanted to know that. And that is obviously made up. And how my mind wandered in a two-hour and 14-minute Disney movie. Yeah. I like Emma Thompson, but I don't think I love the character. The minute she showed up on screen and the people in the theater were like wildly laughing about what she was saying. I was like, she is no Miranda Priestly. Yeah. And I just wanted to watch the Devil Wears Prada again. I almost liked her character more from Late Night with Mindy Kaling. I hated that movie. Oh my God. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Oops. I didn't like that. I don't know. It just wasn't entirely convincing to me. But again, I think they were establishing this mean character and Mm -hmm. like it did the job it was supposed to do. I just didn't really buy into it. Well, I think what's hard too is you have this like Disney villain origin story. And if you're trying to humanize a villain, you need like a worse villain, I guess. (laughs) So that's what they were trying to do. But sometimes it did feel like a caricature or like a Disney-fied version of the Mm -hmm. Miranda Priestly character which again like as a Devil Wears Prada fan as someone who likes this kind of world like I was able at least to I think have fun with the character even though I knew it was very much a Disney version of something that I'd like more from someone else but I do think Emma Thompson was a good fit for the part I just like watching her but the drama between her and Cruella slash Estella just lasted for so long (laughs) Mm-hmm. And I think it's hard, too, with a Disney movie that we're supposed to assume, based on the journey that Estella goes through as Cruella, this, like, rival Jenny Humphrey-like fashion designer. Sorry, we're using so many references. That is Gossip Girl for people I don't who know that didn't one. watch Gossip Girl. <laughs> type of fashion designer that a Disney character somehow invented punk. Like, Disney is the culture, right? It's not, not punk. Yeah, I- But I think I am thinking about it too hard again and just need to be like, you know, I don't need to get the meaning of life out of a Disney movie. Yeah, I think with tightening things up, there were so many montages of galas where the Baroness would show up and then Cruella would upstage her. And it went on for so long. I think Mm -hmm. also they spent so long with Estella Cruella memorializing her not mother that it was like we spent so much time doing that it wasn't as pleasing to me as maybe they had hoped it would be once they reveal that the baroness is the mother yeah and i think that's part of it was just in building out this story i think they tried to cover a lot of ground and ultimately when you do get to the ending into the post credit scene there is no way if you are a fan of 101 dalmatians that these two stories connect even with the clear visual cues and Mm-hmm. obviously the same characters they just did not connect for me and along with that we've talked about the characters but i think the dogs themselves in all of the earlier films were these lovely creatures and they were nice and you wanted to take one of them home and then in this film you have the three murderous dalmatians which in real life dalmatians are known to be aggressive So that was also hard for me. Like, why are they now these dangerous creatures? And in all of the other movies, which come 
after this. They're so lovely. I mean, part of it, it's like, it's a children's story. Like the original, like we love talking Mm -hmm. animals and dogs. So of course, like in a Disney movie, they're going to make these dogs seem lovely. Like there are so many scenes in 101 Dalmatians, the 61 version that I just find absolutely delightful with the hand-run animation and just the way that they Mm -hmm. show these puppies. It's so cute. Like when they're all watching TV or when you have Pongo looking out the window, seeing the dogs and the owners, how they look alike. And we do get a callback to that in Cruella like very quickly, which I did like. But yeah, the choice to show these dogs as like really vicious dogs, but also to give her a really cute little dog, Buddy, who we're supposed to be like, okay, so the Dalmatians are the mean dogs, and then Buddy is her, her good dog to show, like, okay, she's human. She doesn't actually hate all dogs. Yeah. Maybe she won't skin them. It's just kind of an interesting, like, Disney choice. Yeah. And then I have to ask you, what did you think about Paul Walter Hauser? I was going to say, when are we going to talk about <laughs> Paul Walter Hauser? I think that this is, like, the perfect type of role for him. I don't mean that in, like, a mean way. I think that he has, like, character actor sensibilities. I think because of our history with Paul Walter Hauser and just, like, our jokes about him, I couldn't tell if it was funny because he was funny or it was funny because of our relationship to Paul Walter Hauser. But I thought he did a good job in the movie, like, considering what this movie was again. I thought he was, like, a perfect fit for that role. What did you think of him? I think it was a mix of both. I think he definitely plays better in a comedic role. And he had fun with putting on costumes and being in drag in one scene. Mm -hmm. And having him in, like, Richard Jewell being this really serious guy. Like, I couldn't take him seriously. But when he's playing stupid and falls into a cake, say, in this movie, like, Uh that seems more fitting for him. And I don't mean that in a mean way either. But I think you can see in his face, too, that he enjoys it. I think more. I think he understood the assignment. Like, he he knew, <laughs> I think, what they needed and what this character could be. Absolutely. And thinking about Horace and Jasper from the other versions, too, he is my favorite iteration of that character. And even more than, like, Mark Williams slash Arthur Weasley in the live-action version. But I don't know. I I thought that he did a great job. And on the other hand, I think Joel Fry did a great job as Jasper uh-huh. in the older films played by Hugh Laurie. He's actually the one like character you really connect with because he's mm-hmm. asking all the questions like, why is Corella mean? And, you know, why are you acting this way? And he's on the smarter side where he's doing a lot of the behind the scenes work on these heists and wanting to help out Estella. At one point, I did think there was going to be, like, a side romance plot with them. Oh, my God. (laughs) I really did. I was like, this is where this is going. I'm glad we didn't venture down that path. (laughs) Yeah. But I did think that it could go that way. But, yeah, I liked him. I thought that he did a great job, too. I recognized him from Game of Thrones and was excited to, like, see him in this. And I also thought, like, the little kids that played Jasper, like a young Jasper and Horace, Mm -hmm. that was great casting. I think it was, like, uncanny for those two and really fit. So what did you like about Cruella? Did you like anything about it? I would say the costumes and the cinematography. Okay. And the soundtrack. I did Mm -hmm. like the music. I loved the costumes, too. I thought the costumes were really neat in a lot of scenes. I really liked the trash dress. This will make sense, like, when you've seen the movie. (laughs) The long train that just, like, comes out of the garbage truck. I really liked that one. Mm -hmm. I really liked the bug butterfly dress. That was really neat. Mm Mm-hmm. Where you find out they all just hatch. Because when I first saw that, I was a little grossed out because they reminded me of the cicadas as I were living through this cicada swarm. And that's what they were, pretty much. So... (laughs) When you have a film about fashion and you were mentioning like so many galas, so many runway shows, I think they were, you know, just another way to showcase the incredible costumes from Jenny Bevan. As far as the music goes, I liked the music a lot, actually. Like the songs were really fun and songs that people will recognize. Mm -hmm. But I think if you have a Nicholas Brittell score, which when his name came up on the credits as the composer, I just thought... Why would you have over 30 songs in a movie where Nicholas Bertel is doing the score? And yeah, the songs are great. Like you have The Doors, you have The Rolling Stones, you have Tina Turner, but you also have Nicholas Bertel score. So it's kind of like, I think you need, if you have both, like you mm-hmm. need a little bit better of a balance. It definitely felt like more music than 
a normal Disney movie. Mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of them are score-based. So where does Disney go from here? I read a few things about, one, them being in development on a Cruella 2. So this is a sequel of Cruella, where it's both of the Emmas and then potentially Glenn also making an appearance in some way. But they're also working on a sequel to the 101, 102 Dalmatians from the 90s and 2000s. And Glenn is actually working on that script and project. And she's very tight-lipped on it. This was in a Variety article. But she said, It's Cruella comes to New York and disappears down the sewers with ties to Godfather Part 2. What? And that would be with Glenn reprising her role of Cruella. I am so confused. (laughs) I mean, in Glenn we trust, but also... What? I mean, I just... Again, Uh, I will probably watch these, you know, with low expectations. I guess it's too much of me to expect that these stories should connect to the original in any way. (laughs) So if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would you give it? I would give it best costume design. I think that was the element that stood out the most to me when I was watching the movie. And I think it has a really great chance of getting nominated. It will be in my predictions for a very long time. I think the costumes were very successful, even if they weren't like runway show pieces, if they were just everyday wear that the characters were wearing. I think they were very extravagant, very period appropriate, but also very creative. What about you? I would also do costume design. Jenny Bevan won twice at the Oscars. She won for A Room with a View and Mad Max Fury Road, and she was also nominated eight other times. So she's very respected, and there is so much fashion. And it's really fun to look at. It's almost like it's another character in the movie. People on film Twitter are also saying, for your consideration, Emma Thompson in Supporting Actress, I guess. And I'm like, you guys need to chill. It is May. Yeah. (laughs) That's not happening. And yes, obviously we've said some things before where we kind of sell Disney short in nominations and predictions, but this is going to be technical. This is not going to be in above-the-line acting nominations. I agree with you. I think that you can like a movie a lot and not give it a bunch of Oscar predictions. Like, that is really possible. Mm -hmm. I even mentioned Emma Thompson's performance as being one of my favorites, but... Will I ever put this in my even top 10 for predictions? Absolutely not. I think maybe production design, we could maybe see it there, kind of like Mulan. But I think that's probably where I would stop. The Academy also can give Florence and the Machine an Oscar nomination for Best Original Song. We do have a credit song from her. And I really love her, so I would not be opposed to her getting an Oscar nomination. Even though I have been on the record multiple times about end credit songs. I'll make an exception for her. (laughs) So overall, I think, how do you think Cruella will do? Do you think people will like it? And would you recommend this to someone? I think it's going to do pretty well. If I'm recommending this movie, it's going to depend on who that audience is. There was some pretty like mixed positive praise before I had seen it. So I did go in with a little bit of higher expectations and maybe was a little let down. But I think if you're excited for a Disney movie, you want to go back to theaters, you want something visually appealing. And with actors that you're familiar with, I think this is great. I don't know if I would say this is for families, like young kids. But if you're aware of 101 Dalmatians, go for it. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think I think if you if you go into it just thinking of Disney and what Disney has made recently and what Disney has become, I think you'll really enjoy it. I mean, I again, set your expectations properly going into this. I think that if you do that, like this will really stand apart. It does have a lot to offer, I think, in comparison to the other Disney live action remakes or origin stories or anything like that. And I would, I mean, I would 100% rather watch something that nods to like Alexander McQueen and Vivian Westwood and people like that than a Marvel movie. So before we get into A Quiet Place 2, Nom or Bomb is back, and this time we will be nomming or bombing prequels, sequels, or origin stories. So starting with Finding Dory. This is a bomb for me. Same. Bomb for me, one of my least favorite Pixar films. 
Next up, we have Spider-Man 2. I'm going to say bomb. I'm going to say nom. I like this one. We have Alfred Molina as Doc Ock. Donna Murphy plays his wife. It's like a weirdly great cast. I really like this one. How about Mamma Mia? Here we go again. Easy nom. Yes. 100% nom. (laughs) One of my comfort movies for sure. Scream 2. Also a nom for me. I really do like 3, 2, even though critically it's pretty hated on, but give me any scream. I'm so easy on horror movies. I like them even if they're bad, so this is a nom for me also. Next is The Dark Knight. Oh, easy nom. I love this one. Mm-hmm. This is, I think, my favorite comic book movie. Yeah, this is a nom for me too. I think the best Joker performance we've ever gotten, played by Heath Ledger, just genius. Absolutely. And that's a perfect segue into Joker. (laughs) (laughs) This is a bomb for me. That's all I'll say. It's also a bomb for me. This was the last movie that we saw in theaters together before Cruella. Can't wait for Joker 2 coming. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Mm-hmm. Okay, Maleficent. Maleficent is a bomb for me. I didn't like the direction that they took this, even though I love Angelina. What about you? And I like Elle, but yes, this was a bomb for me too. (laughs) Paddington 2. This will be a nom for me. These are sweet films. I love Paddington 2. This is definitely a nom for me. Next is Skyfall. This is a nom for me. I like this Bond movie a lot. What about you? Yeah, this is a nom for me too. I don't like love love the Bond films, but they're enjoyable. Before Sunset. Absolutely love. This is a nom. Nom for me too. I love these. The whole trilogy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So good. How about Aliens? I love Aliens. Nom. Mm-hmm. Nom for me. And then the prequel, Prometheus. Do you like that one too? I'm in a bomb, Prometheus. I had trouble with this one. It was probably the conditions in which I saw the movie, but it was really mm-hmm. late at night, so I was extra tired. The movie's very dark, very gray, so I struggled to stay awake <laughs> during this one, which is a bad sign. I'll say Nom. I enjoyed it. Michael Fassbender is good in it. Mm -hmm. Next, we have Magic Mike XXL. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I enjoyed Magic Mike. I think it was shot super well. Mm -hmm. And that was Steven Soderbergh. Did he do this one or no? No. I'm going to say bomb here. I'm going to say numb. What am I doing? Am I really going to bomb this movie with that Channing Tatum scene? No. (laughs) And last but not least, The Godfather Part 2. Easy numb. Maybe the best sequel ever. Yeah, nom for me. Now let's get into A Quiet Place Part 2, a really fun return to theaters. We'll just start by saying that. Mm -hmm. Letterbox description here. Following the events at home, the Abbott family now face the terrors of the outside world. Forced to venture into the unknown... My God, that made me think of Frozen 2. I hated that. (laughs) They realize the creatures that hunt by sound are not the only threats lurking beyond the sand path. This was directed by John Krasinski. It stars Emily Blunt, Killian Murphy, Millicent Simmons, and Noah Jupe. What did you think of A Quiet Place Part 2? This is what a theater experience should be. It's enjoyable from start to finish. It's thrilling. There's so much action, jump scares. The plot's decent. It's fine. You know, Mm -hmm. I'll roll with it. I think it's a great extension of the first movie. Leaves a little cliffhanger into a third one, which is already in production with a different director. I think it was great. I loved it so much. What did you think? Like I alluded to before, I'm really easy on horror films. I think there is a class of horror films, like the classics, that do offer something more. This, I would not put in that group, but this is just pure fun and entertainment the whole entire time. Even if the plot got a little silly sometimes, or there were some plot holes there, no third act again, like we had in the first movie, I still was able to, I think, really enjoy it. And I liked how they used some of the things that they did in the first one, but one of the movies that we mentioned in Nam or Bomb, Aliens, A Quiet Place is more like Alien- You know, it's doing more innovative things. It's more about the sound, more about the technical components. And A Quiet Place 2 is more like Aliens, where it's just action-packed from the get-go. You don't really Mm -hmm. get a moment to breathe because of the editing and because of the story and how much we see of the monsters. 
I obviously prefer Alien and Aliens. I think those are better movies than these two. I think that if mm-hmm. you're looking to draw comparisons, like that's how it was structured. And I think that's why I liked this one and why it was a successful sequel. Yeah, I went back and watched A Quiet Place and parts of it are really slow. Some of that is tension building, but mm-hmm. also it's establishing this universe. And what's great about this one is that you don't need any of that. And more of that stillness comes in the plot development and where Reagan goes, really, because I think she's the lead here. Yeah, Millicent Simmons, her performance was one of the standout components to this for me. Like it was her movie and Mm -hmm. you know she did a great job in the first one and was like pretty underappreciated for her performance so the first movie ends we have john krasinski playing lee he sacrifices himself so that his kids can survive and then at the very end there's a monster in the house that evelyn played by emily blunt she ends up killing because reagan finds out that her hearing aid when she puts that on the microphone it messes with the monster's hearing So there is really no final act to the first movie because we don't find out what happens. And that's obviously where part two comes in. And with Evelyn cocking the shotgun at the end of the movie, that's kind of our Chekhov's gun where we know that there has to be some more killing in the second movie. So let's talk about the beginning because I really loved how this movie opened. I thought it was just a really great way to start everything. How did you feel about how it opened with the flashback? I absolutely loved the beginning. I knew I was in for it, and I was so excited once those opening credits came up. Mm -hmm. I was like, what a perfect way to start a movie, to go back, to include yourself, since you died at the end of the first movie, find a way to put yourself back in, And also to establish, like, as day one, this is how everything started. Mm -hmm. So they go back and explain without needing, you know, a whole nother 90 minutes giving us another installment. They do it in probably like 10 to 15 minutes, ramp up the intensity, use all those similar devices with Reagan being deaf and going in and out using the sound design of what she hears and what the other characters hear. And then from there, building on this world going back to where the first one ended. And I think that is just wonderful. Yeah, I like it because if for some reason you didn't see A Quiet Place and like your friends want to go to the movies and see this one and you're like, I don't really know what happens. This like very clearly and quickly lets you know what the deal is with these monsters, what's going on like with this family, what they've been through in a really short period of time. This also, I think, made me think of how John Krasinski's probably pretty influenced by Steven Spielberg. Like, the beginning felt very Spielberg-like to me. And, you know, just, like, starting in a Little League game, I did laugh at that, of just, like, John Krasinski being dead from the first one and then putting himself in this one. I was like, is this a Marvel type of situation where nothing's really dead? But it wasn't. But I like how they established everything that way, and I thought it was a great way to open, ratchet up the tension, It showed, I think, that tonally this one was going to be brasher. It was going to be louder. We were going to have more monsters throughout. It was also wild, like, seeing the monsters killing all of the people because we really didn't get that in the first one. Because in the first one, Mm -hmm. it's, like, just this family. And here, I think we got to see how the monsters just came in and ravaged this town. You get the feeling Mm of it being a post-apocalyptic movie in a different way than you do in the first one. When they showed the meteors or Mm -hmm. whatever they were coming through the sky, I had goosebumps. That was so cool because, I mean, in that moment, you are one of those people at the baseball field, like the small town, you're all, everybody's there watching the game and everybody is experiencing this for the first time of like, what is happening? Mm Mm-hmm. And it was like, whoa, to feel that must have been horrifying. And everybody scatters. Lee is like, we got to go. It reminded me a lot of War of the Worlds, like another Spielberg movie Mm -hmm. of that that opening did, Um, especially like you're talking about with the meteors of just like something weird coming that no one really knows about until it's too late. 
And then like, what is your plan to get away from this? And I also really like the addition of Killian Murphy here. And I like how they put him in at the beginning, because if you've seen trailers or like, if you're part of the Tommy Shelby hive and you've watched Peaky Blinders, like, you know that when you see him, like he's going to have an important role. He isn't just like a person Mm -hmm. at this baseball game who you're not going to see again for the rest of the movie. So I like how they put him in there because you know that he's going to have a role later on in the movie and you're just trying Mm -hmm. to connect the dots of how will this character come back. And in what you said about John Krasinski's methods before, it does kind of seem like low-hanging fruit Mm -hmm. and an easy device. But I think setting up foreshadowing and the moment here with Killian when Reagan teaches him the word dive Mm -hmm. in sign language, I was like, that's coming back. Yeah, Remember that. And it does come back in a really, really cool way. Mm -hmm. I love that scene too. Yeah. On the water. I was like, whoa, did not expect this at all. When he uses dive, when he jumps in, I was like, this is incredible. Yes, it is cheesy, but I like that in movies like this. But it works. Yeah. You know, Mm -hmm. even if this does, I think, feel sometimes like a family film (laughs) with scary stuff thrown in. Like, I'm fine with that. This is what I think of, like, when I just think of having fun at the movies and, like, what I missed mm-hmm. being away from a movie theater. Your experience is benefited from seeing it big and loud. And one thing that I did like also about the Killian Murphy casting was that when they show him initially and he's just, like, having that quick conversation with John Krasinski, like, when he goes to get in his car and they, like, check in and he mentions that his brother is, like, in the military... I think with my background knowledge of this actor, I was tricked into thinking like maybe he could be bad or like somehow involved in this. Mm. If this was some kind of like inside deal, like with the military, I was like, oh, maybe that can be a story. But then that just like didn't pan out at all. And he ended up like being a, a good guy. But I think that worked in like with your expectations of who this actor is. But also with his history, like in 28 Days Later, Mm -hmm. I think that connects really well here in that also apocalyptic movie. Yeah. I mean, but he kind of does become this villain in a sense where he doesn't want the family to stay with him because they do end up compromising his safety and monsters get into his home because they came. (laughs) So he wasn't wrong in wanting them to leave. But I think understanding that he was friends with this family beforehand humanizes him and makes him a central character to the plot of this movie in particular. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think, too, we should talk about the Noah Jupe character because, well, sometimes I would get very frustrated with him. I was like, this is a very relatable character because... Who among us wouldn't scream if your foot got caught in a trap like that? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, who wouldn't freak out? And especially as a kid, if your mom's just like, I'm running these errands again, like maybe I'll be back in a few hours. His emotional responses were very relatable, even though they were frustrating at times. Yeah, when he couldn't sit still later on in the film and he goes outside, it's like, oh my God, just wait a few more hours even. Because then he ventures, that was probably the creepiest part to me, though, was with those suits that were hanging in that room. And then he finds the woman, mm-hmm. who I'm assuming is the wife. Yeah, I think so. Of Killian's character. Mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, that was terrifying, but also like, dude, come on. Mm-hmm. I did want more for Emily Blunt. I think that she has really proven herself as being capable of being this like action movie star goddess. And... Mm-hmm. They kind of relegate her a little too much to the mother role, I think. My only criticism really is that they brought in a stand-in for the John Krasinski character, like another father figure, to go along this Mm -hmm. journey with Reagan. And like the fact that he's the one who believes her and goes with her and that it's not her mom, I think I would have preferred it to be this Emily Blunt's character Evelyn being the one who is like doing more of the the fighting and the journey and like taking those risks because there are parts that like she does have some really cool moments like where she Mm -hmm. sets the monster on fire by blowing up those oxygen tanks like that's cool Mm -hmm. but I think she still is very much in that mother role and I wanted a little more for her. I'm happy to an extent that she became a supporting character 
in lieu of Reagan becoming the lead. Mm -hmm. But also calling this a weaker element is still not entirely a bad thing, but it really uses the framework of the first movie and almost copies it. Mm -hmm. Because you have, like, in the first movie, Evelyn has the baby and she has to be really quiet. Mm -hmm. And then in this one, you have the standoff where she blows him up and the sprinklers go off and she has to get back to safety. And then, like, in the ending sequence where you had Lee sacrificing himself, once they make it to the studio at the end of the second movie, Killian's character Emmett sacrifices himself so that Reagan can get to the microphone. And maybe he doesn't die, but that same structure, everything kind of Mm -hmm. repeats itself. Yeah. And it's interesting because it is, I think John Krasinski's working through some stuff as a dad with his kids, because I think the first movie, like he mentioned, was really like about parenting. Like he felt like Mm -hmm. that's what it was about. And the second one, I think to me, is much more about like trusting your kids and letting them go a little bit and letting them for themselves and I think when we get that at the end of Reagan confronting one of the monsters and Marcus also confronting another monster to defend his mom it's like trusting your kids to fend for themselves Mm -hmm. and like that they're just as powerful as their parents I think yeah he's working through some stuff as a dad which is kind of fun to watch I think I got choked up in that moment too because I did like the editing in those parts and then you're watching Evelyn be so awestruck by Marcus's bravery. Mm-hmm. I think watching that, like seeing the parent watch the child defend her is heartwarming and powerful. I mean, they all now have leg injuries in some way. So I don't know if they're all going to be <laughs> limping through the third movie. They're all going to be like bandaged. Yeah. I liked that too, especially because at the beginning, like when they're at the baseball game, Evelyn is like calming Marcus down, like telling him mm-hmm. to be calm, like when he's up at bat and just mm-hmm. seeing how much their worlds have shifted and how she doesn't in the yeah. beginning of the movie and like throughout, honestly, she does have to calm him down quite a bit from his anxiety, but then he's able to overcome it mm-hmm. in the end, which is very Spielberg. I felt like that was where mm-hmm. I also saw that yeah. come back. Like heavy on the relationships, but also seeing them evolve. Mm-hmm. So do you think they're going to defeat the monsters in the third movie? Where do you think the third movie is going to go? Oh, I think it'll probably be a similar structure. I think that he knows like what's what's working for these movies. And, you know, we got a little taste of it maybe with them coming to the island. So maybe I think the monsters figuring out how to get there or if the people on the island are trying to find a way to maybe help any like people who are still not there or who are still like on mainland. I think that could be a part of it. I was a little bummed that we got to see Jaimin Hansu for a minute and then he got dragged away by a monster because I thought he would have been a really good additional character in the next movie. Mm-hmm. He's like kind of a pitch perfect actor for that type of role, I think. So, but yeah, I think I think that's where I can maybe see it going. What about you? I'm hoping it's the conclusion to a trilogy and it ends on a high note. Mm-hmm. I don't want this dragging on and becoming something like having nine movies and you know yeah. we're still trying to defeat them. But I think if they can get this broadcast out and help people all over the world they're gonna have to settle down somewhere too i wonder where they're gonna end up Mm -hmm. as a family i wonder if like the second movie it's gonna continue right from the end of this one or if it's gonna jump into the future maybe Mm -hmm. yeah i agree with you like i hope that it doesn't drag out too long but as we've discussed today like the movie world i feel like is becoming so ip dominant that if something makes a lot of money Mm -hmm. like they will just find a way to milk it and milk it for all that they can so i was really hoping that this would be the end like it would just be a two but Mm -hmm. hopefully yeah it's just a trilogy and then if you could give this movie one oscar what would you give it i think yes we could give it to best sound like the first film was nominated for Mm -hmm. in 2019 but i would give it to millie simmons here I think she's the star. She's the lead. We've discussed her performance a little bit, but I liked her the most in this movie. What would you give it? I liked her a lot, too. I do think I would give it to Best Sound. I'm always hesitant to do acting just because of what we haven't seen yet, but the sound team was nominated for sound editing back in 2019, and then the like supervising sound editor for A Quiet Place Part 2 
also was on the team for A Quiet Place and was nominated. And he was also nominated for Argo in Transformers Dark of the Moon. So I think that they have a good shot of being nominated again. And well, I think the work in the first movie definitely stood out more just because of how it was used. I think that it is really high quality work here, too. And I think we made this pretty clear, but would you recommend people go see A Quiet Place Part 2 or I guess who in particular? I would recommend this to anyone who is eager to get back to movie theaters and to see a blockbuster like on the big screen again. I think that it has a great runtime. It has something for everyone in it. And it is a really enjoyable sequel. I think, you know, I wouldn't put it in like the pantheon of classic horror, but I do think that it's just a fun summer movie. What about you? This movie reminded me why the theater experience is so special. Mm -hmm. You're so consumed by the movie and the thrill of the scares in this case. And I really, really like that. For anybody that wants to feel any of that again, go see this movie. If you want to scream, if you want to have a collective experience again with other Mm -hmm. moviegoers, I think this is perfect. So these are just two recent releases. We have a lot more movies being released in theaters that are coming soon. Next week, The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It will be released in theaters and on HBO Max. Also, Spirit, Untamed, In the Heights, F9, Zola, The Green Knight, a lot that we're going to be discussing throughout the summer and some really big blockbuster hits that I think will have audiences really coming back to the theaters. I'm so excited for a lot of these movies. I can't wait to see The Next Conjuring. I'm so ready again for another horror movie in theaters just to experience it. And I think these movies, like both of them, even though, you know, we had different reactions to them, were, I think, proved just how ready we are to be back in theaters and just experience anything, honestly. So I'm excited to cover what's ahead for this summer. And next time on Oscar Wilde, we will have an exclusive interview with Nicole Regal, who is the director of a movie called Holler, which will be premiering through IFC Films on June 11th in theaters and on VOD streaming. So we're excited to share the interview with you. She's wonderful and talks a lot about her movie, which we really enjoyed too. Also an Ohio woman. Yeah. And she was wonderful to talk with and I'm excited to share that. And it was fun to hear her experience growing up because her film is semi-autobiographical. We'll link the trailer to her film in the description so that you guys can watch that before you either listen to the interview or if you want to watch that before the film and then come back and listen to our interview. And if you want to submit any ideas or films that you're excited to see coming out in theater soon, you can email us at oscarwildpod at gmail.com or message us on social media on Instagram or Twitter at oscarwildpod. Thank you all for listening and we'll see you next week. Thank you all so much for listening. We hope that you enjoyed Cruella and A Quiet Place Part 2 and we will see you next time. Bye.